0: You're listening to Token Talks, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I'm your host, Zach DeWitt.
1: We think about the token uh, mechanics, and that's really important as an investor because even if the technology is real and the team can bring it to market, if the token is not going to accrue value back to the token, as an investor, it may not make sense as an investment. So you may want it to succeed in the world, and, and there are certainly projects that. Fall into this where we're very happy that these things exist, but at the end of the day, as an investment, it just doesn't make any sense. And so you have to really understand the economics of it.
0: Today, we're joined by Avitral Garg, co founder and managing partner at Electric Capital. Electric Capital is a crypto asset management firm founded by Avitral, prominent angel Elod Gill, and Curtis Spencer. Electric invests in both liquid and illiquid tokens that are emerging stores of value and rooted in novel technology. Electric's thesis centers around investing in programmable money, specifically seizure-resistant store of values, privacy coins, and smart contracts for financial platforms. I encourage you to visit electriccapital.com to read their thoughtful and articulate thesis on the crypto ecosystem. On token talks, we have focused on exclusive interviews with founders of top crypto projects. But crypto native funds are startups themselves, and I think you will greatly enjoy today's interview. Please introduce yourself. Hey, my name
1: is Avichal. I'm managing partner and co founder at Electric Capital. And what were you doing prior
0: to a career in crypto?
1: Uh, Most recently, I was director of product at Facebook. Uh, I got there by way of an acquisition back in 2012. They acquired our previous company. And before that, I had another company that I started and sold and worked at Google for a few years. I worked on search ranking and ads ranking. In terms of crypto, I started off as a hobbyist back in 2012, 2013. When we were doing our previous company, we actually looked at uh, Bitcoin and the ecosystem. My co-founder Curtis and I, we'd read the white paper and gotten involved just more from the technology side. We thought it was pretty elegant and interesting, um, but it felt really early. And so we decided that it didn't make sense to jump into the ecosystem at that point. But we tracked it as hobbyists and bought some Bitcoin and threw along the way and and Monero and sort of participated that way. I left Facebook uh, December 2016. And kind of got back into crypto and was reading white papers and going to conferences. Uh, And then over the course of 2017, the market kind of went crazy and a bunch of investors started reaching out. People who are adjacent to crypto, like VCs, started reaching out and saying, hey, you guys understand the tech here. Can you help us do some diligence? And then kind of by the summer and the fall, that really turned into, hey, I don't have time to do diligence. Can you just tell me what to buy? And by the winter, that turned into, wow, this is actually a different thing than, than what I do, and actually understanding this stuff as a full-time job. Uh, you guys are already spending all your time on this. Do you want to raise a fund, and do you want to do this full-time and, and professionalize it? And at the time, we, we were already spending all of our personal time doing this, and so that's kind of how we started Electric Capital. And what is Electric
0: Capital and how to get formed?
1: Uh, we're a digital asset management firm. We focus on uh, tokens only. Um, so you know, we'll, do, we'll do equity investments in so much as it entitles us to a token distribution. And really fundamentally what we think is happening is, to use an Andreessen phrase, this is software eating money and money-like instruments. And so the ability to uh, store value in a digital medium, the ability for code to own and control money, the ability to have private and anonymous transactions, we think these are really fundamentally interesting technologies that are going to unlock trillions of dollars of value globally and so that's where we focus. And so we take positions in tokens and ecosystems that we think are, are have real technology and real teams and real go-to markets and uh, think could actually create a lot of value in the next decade.
0: So Electric Capital put out a great Medium post on programmable money and your thesis around programmable money. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that and, and why that's the theme you're investing behind. The way we think about the world is... Um,
1: there's kind of the traditional financial stack, right? There's stores of value and then there's central banks and there are banks on top of that and there are brokerages and derivatives platforms and so on. So there's this whole financial stack. And uh, starting from the bottom of that stack of fundamentally how do you store and transfer value, we're now kind of reinventing that with software. And over time, we think what's going to happen is we're going to move up through that stack. And so slowly we'll eat up Things like, what does it mean to uh, have a bank? What does it mean to actually own your assets? Derivatives and new forms of equities and brokerages and all of that stuff kind of gets reinvented. And then the other dimension that we think about is kind of the degree to which this gets decentralized. And so there will be some forms of this that are extremely decentralized, like Bitcoin, and some forms that are sort of semi-decentralized. And they'll, they'll have one foot in either world. And so, for example... Coinbase kind of has one foot in either world. It actually looks like a traditional business, but is really built on top of the infrastructure of this decentralized and distributed world. Or Binance kind of has one foot in either world. And so there are going to be companies and products that are created that fill out that whole spectrum uh, from more centralized to fully decentralized. And there are going to be projects that start all the way from the base of just how do you store and transfer value and wealth all the way up through like brokerages and retail experiences and consumer experiences. So that's kind of where we focus. And specifically where we, where we spend most of our time is in the token universe. And in the token universe, we think really what you have to do is start with where is there technology that allows you to do something that you couldn't do before? Because that's how technology adoption happens and that's how disruption fundamentally happens. And so we think about four buckets of things. We think about things that look kind of like money. So that's things like Bitcoin. We think the second bucket is uh, things that are platforms where code can control money. And that's a pretty interesting concept. If you just look around the world, a lot of things in the world are actually legal code that owns money and then has some rules around how that money can move around. And humans then execute those rules. Uh, And so that's wills and trusts and escrow agreements and, and securities and REITs. And actually a lot of the world is basically that. And computers are just better at deterministically executing code. And so this feels like a thing that software should be able to do much more efficiently than humans. Uh, and then there are two other parts of, of the ecosystem I think have a lot of energy right now, which is distributed infrastructure. So taking the parts of a computer and or a network and sort of decentralizing those and tokenizing those. And then the last is distributed applications, things that allow end users to do things in a, in a truly decentralized way. And those are really technically interesting. Those latter two are very technically interesting, but they're very early. And so we don't spend a lot of time on those. Uh, we spend all of our time on the first two, which is things that look like money and platforms that allow code to own and operate on money. And so that's where we spend all our time, and we call that
0: programmable money. So for those two buckets, things that look like money and protocols that control money, what are the dynamics here? Are these a winner-take-all market for each of these categories? Um, Do you think there could be multiple winners, geographical winners? Short answer is nobody really knows yet. And there are
1: certainly network effects to these businesses. And by analogy, if you look at other technology waves that have had really, really strong network effects... Um, whether it's payment networks or mobile messaging or social networks, you find this interesting property where in the early days you have a lot of fragmentation. And then over a period of time, there's consolidation. And then at scale, there's a refragmentation. And so if you take social networking, for example, there were a lot of social networks in the early and mid 2000s. And then by the late 2000s, Facebook kind of consolidated and was the big winner. and, And all of the others had kind of died off. And then recently you've seen a refragmentation as the world has gotten really, really big and and you've had 2 billion people come online. So you have WeChat in China, you have Line in uh, Southeast Asia, you had WhatsApp that was able to take off in India. And so you kind of got a refragmentation that happened, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, you kind of got this fragmentation because the market sizes are really large. So I wouldn't be surprised if actually you saw some sort of a similar effect here where because a lot of these platforms need to interface back with the real world and interfacing with the real world means that you have language boundaries and culture boundaries and regulatory boundaries that you end up with initially something that takes a lot of the market share. But as the rest of the world comes online, you get a refragmentation across those geographic boundaries in certain use cases. Um, And so smart contracting platforms, for example, you might end up with three to six really, really big winners globally, because they have to interface back with the real world. And so you might have a, a big Chinese winner, a big Asian winner, a big European winner, and a big uh, North American winner. Whereas with something like store value, there's a lot of value fundamentally in the liquidity and the ability to transfer that. And so you might end up with a winner takes most dynamic. So it kind of depends on the use case. And it kind of depends on the time horizon that you're talking about. But I suspect we'll have periods of consolidation and
0: fragmentation for the next decade. So in the four buckets you laid out, you know, the, those almost divide across money crypto and tech crypto. And there's a big debate in the community now of where people should be spending their time and where they should be investing. Um, why did you guys decide to focus more on the money side of things? Is it you think that's a bigger TAM, you know, addressable market? You think it's this is where value will accrue? Why did you choose the money side of things over the, the decentralized tech crypto side of things? There are basically three
1: reasons. One is the TAMs. So if you look at the total addressable market for money, depending on where you size it, you could say, well, conservatively, it's just a better digital gold. And that's a $7, trillion, $7 to $8 trillion uh, total addressable market in terms of proxy for gold. Or you could start sizing it at, you know, M2 or M3 and you start getting, you know, into like 90 trillion plus. And so the the market sizes are just enormous. The second is the utility. So it's actually stuff that you can do today. So if you think about moving money into a digital currency and then transferring that and then being able to get money back out, you can actually kind of do the thing that you need to do today. Now there's all sorts of challenges around being able to get enough liquidity and volatility and so on, but you're kind of at MVP stage right now. You can actually kind of do the things that you need to do contrast that with some of the other distributed infrastructure distributed applications it's actually still pretty nascent like if you wanted to, to actually build something on uh, like a distributed file system it's non-trivial to actually do that and relative to your alternatives on something like aws it's you really have to be like philosophically bought into a decentralized and distributed world to want to pursue a particular you know platform that's that's so nascent and so we think those things will happen but they're they're you know three years out really from being usable and useful uh, kind of at MVP stage and then the third is just looking at where the usage is so fundamentally I think especially when technologists enter markets they're usually too early and you see this pattern over and over and over where the people who really understand the technology see the promise of it and it's so obvious to the technologists that this thing is gonna happen that they're often five years too early and then the average person and, and the average retail user or the average consumer kind of looks at it and it takes them a while to sort of come up that learning curve. And so right now, if you look at where people are, where their level of understanding of this stuff is, is it's basically Bitcoin and a little bit of Ethereum and people are starting to get their heads around this idea of digital stores of value. And so by any qualitative or quantitative measure, I think that's really where, where the mainstream quote unquote adoption is right now. And so as an investor, I think, you, you know, that timing is really, really important. And, and that's really the only thing that has any kind of real adoption right now.
0: What are some of the emergent properties of these new crypto money platforms that you think are so compelling? I mean, for example, I actually heard this last week that one thing that people are so excited about Bitcoin is you can actually walk naked across a border and carry a million dollars with you, you know, just based on the seed password in your head. So there's there certain new properties that these crypto platforms are enabling with the money use case, or there are certain areas you're excited about. Yeah. So the way I think about this is it's not actually necessarily new properties.
1: It's actually if you look at a store of value or what makes for a useful store of value, there are certain utilitarian properties that you need. And so portability is, is one of those. So the ability to carry your, your wealth with you is, is an important function of, of a store of value. Liquidity is another one. Ease of transfer is another one. Privacy is another one. And so you can actually enumerate all of these properties. And then you can benchmark it against things like gold, or the U.S. dollar, or uh, a non-U.S. currency, or uh, land. And you can start to actually sort of rationally look at these things. And and when you do that, actually, crypto performs better in basically every dimension, from a first principles perspective, than other stores of value. It's actually, to your point, it's easier to, uh, it's more portable. It's actually easier to transfer. Like, I can move money around the world in 6 to 30 minutes instead of days. It's more divisible. It's actually uh, more private. It actually, I think, more closely mirrors the existing financial infrastructure in, in terms of like view keys and, and whatnot, which we can talk about. But it's privacy that's guaranteed by math and software rather than you hoping that some person in the middle doesn't get hacked. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of cases where folks like Equifax have data breaches and, and I would much rather actually trust software than humans in the middle. So you enumerate the properties of stores of value, and it turns out crypto is just better on those dimensions. And I think eventually people will realize that. The one dimension on which it's not better today is volatility. So I think the knock against it is, well, how can something be a store of value if it changes price 5% a day? And to that I say kind of two things. One, well, relative to what? I'm in Venezuela right now, I'd much rather have Bitcoin than Bolivars, right? So there's there's a question of, yeah, maybe relative to USD, but relative to a lot of other alternatives that on the ground people around the world have, Bitcoin might actually be better or another crypto might actually be better. And then the second is, I think it's a fair criticism of the world as it is today. Uh, but if you look forward a couple of years, I think there are some pretty important changes that are coming. So one is that derivatives platforms are, are coming out, uh, which is a really important piece of infrastructure to, to help dampen some of that volatility. I think you're going to start getting deeper pools of capital coming in with institutional dollars over time, especially as custody comes online. And uh, you're going to have professional traders move into this as the market sizes get large, and they'll do the price discovery that's necessary to sort of dampen this volatility. Uh, and so if you play this forward several years, it's not so crazy to imagine that the volatility comes down and, it, and then you start looking at it from the dimensions of what makes for a good store value. And it actually is at least competitive, if not significantly better than than most stores of value that people have access to. You know, you know how long it takes to dampen the volatility is, I think, an open question. But it's actually, I think, fundamentally offers a lot of utility to people. And, and as people start to realize that, I think you'll see adoption go through the roof.
0: Yeah, that's well said. The other point add that is it's probably the other knock on, on Bitcoin today is usability. It can be difficult to use for a lot of mainstream users. And, you know, there'll be new interfaces and wallets that come out that make it much more accessible. So I think that will be uh, important to watch evolve, too. So there's a lot of talk uh, about the FAT protocol thesis. So what is this? How do you define this? And what are your thoughts around it? Yeah, so the FAT protocol thesis basically says that historically
1: people would create, you know, engineers would create protocols like SMTP. And then uh, there would be applications built on top of these free protocols. And the the value would really accrue to the application developers, the people who owned the interfaces and, and built the end user facing products, not down to the protocol developers. And so the FAT protocol thesis says that because now we have tokens, Uh, and you can actually align economic incentives at the underlying protocol level that the user interface, because anybody can build on top of these protocols, starts to become commoditized. And actually, the value will accrue to the tokens and to the underlying protocols. In most cases, when you're talking about applications, I'm actually pretty skeptical of the FAT protocol thesis. It's for two reasons. One is I think most applications actually like the advantage of having an open and free protocol is you drive adoption and so you create interoperability. And that's why those things actually get adoption. I think we have this really big challenge right now where the incentive structures are set up for people to create multiple protocols that basically do the same thing because they're trying to capture all the value. And so I suspect what actually happens is there's a race to the bottom. And actually the thing that's going to make the protocol ultimately successful is adoption. And in a funny way, the tokens end up being a hindrance to that. Um, The second thing that makes me really skeptical is FAT protocol sounds kind of like what engineers wish the world was like, rather than the way the world actually is. You know, through that lens, you know, part of me wishes it was true. But a lot of me is kind of skeptical, because I think that's not actually the way the world works. I think the the big sort of Exception to this rule is actually probably money, which is the protocol and the token are so intimately tied together that you kind of can't have one without the other. It's not the interface, like the token and the protocol is the utility. That's where I think you could potentially apply for a FAT protocol, but I don't think
0: FAT protocol sort of extends out uh, generically beyond that to distributed app platforms or anything like that. How are you feeling about the regulatory environment for crypto? You know, being a fund manager, this is certainly must be top of mind. I'm actually pretty optimistic. I think um, the government,
1: the US government, I think is the one that most people are kind of watching. And the Chinese government, of course, is also something a lot of people pay attention to. But I think just sort of scoping to the U.S. government for a second. The U.S. government has been really, really smart about this. They've been very measured. They've been very thoughtful. Rolling out derivatives via, via existing derivatives platforms was really smart. I think if you look at the rejections that have happened for the ETFs, they've happened for very good reasons. If you look at the nuance around how the SEC said uh, Ethereum is not a security and the rationale behind that saying it's it's a sufficiently decentralized system, I mean, I think that's a very sophisticated view of, of what's happening here. And I think what it really comes down to is the government realizes there's real value here, there's real utility here, and there's actually potentially tremendous upside. And uh, the game theory that, that you then play out is, uh, as a regulator is, of course you don't want to fuel a bubble and you don't want any, anybody to get scammed, but there is real value here, and so how do we create an environment uh, such that uh, the really great stuff can kind of bubble to the top, and you can create a new ecosystem, and have all that value sort of anchored in the U.S. again, um, rather than that potentially floating out. And so, really, what the regulators care about is three things: they care about people paying their taxes, they care about people not getting scammed, and they care about people not giving money to terrorists. And if you look at those three things, those are actually very reasonable requests. <laughs> like people should pay their taxes, and you know we shouldn't, you know, we should get scammers out of the ecosystem, and people shouldn't give money to terrorists. And so I think, like, given their motivations and given how the government has been operating here, I'm actually pretty optimistic. Like, I think the the requests are basically
0: reasonable and their approach has been very measured and thoughtful. So within the programmable money bucket, you've mentioned a few names already. Bitcoin, some of the privacy coins, Monero, Zcash but what types of projects are you guys looking for? What are some of the features you're looking for? What gets you excited?
1: We look at uh, four characteristics when we're evaluating projects, Uh, the four T's as we call them. So we look at the technology, uh, we look at the token mechanics, we look at the team and we look at the market, which I know is not a T, but you get it. (laughs) (laughs) So fundamentally, I think there has to be real technology. There has to be something here that solves a problem. And so that's where we start. And is the technology real? Because the challenge in crypto is a lot of people will make, assertions about what is and isn't possible and the trade-offs that they're making, but there are often assumptions underneath it that you then really have to probe on. So, okay, you're claiming you can get a certain transaction throughput, but how decentralized is your system really? Under what security assumptions did you actually make these calculations? And so on. Even if that turns out to be true, then you have to evaluate the team. And I think the team has to go beyond just the technologist. At the end of the day, you have to bring these things to market. And so there are user problems you have to solve. There are marketing problems you have to solve. There's a developer ecosystem that you have to build. There are all these other things that go into being successful, and the best technology doesn't necessarily win. And so we think about the teams involved into the degree that that they can actually carry this vision forward and actually execute. Um, We think about the token uh, mechanics, and that's really important as an investor, because even if the technology is real and the team can bring it to market, if the token is not going to accrue value back to the token, as an investor, it may not make sense as an investment. So you may want it to succeed in the world, and, and there are certainly projects that I think fall into this where we're very happy that these things exist, but... At the end of the day, as an investment, it just doesn't make any sense. And so you have to really understand the economics of it. Uh, And then the last is the market. And that both means that the team and the technology are solving a real problem, but that there's a reasonable go-to-market. We're not believers in build it and they will come. That's not a go-to-market strategy. You have to have a thought for who is your user what problem are you solving for that person? How do you know it's a real problem? How do you know you're making progress on that problem? How do you go about acquiring those users? And that's not to say that you have to have all the answers to that up front, but you have to acknowledge that those are important questions um, and that they're worth thinking about. Even if they're open, you can have some hypotheses about what those are and then a plan to validate or invalidate those hypotheses. So those are the characteristics that we look at across team, token, technology, and market. And once you start getting through those filters, those are pretty tough filters to get through. And so we are we don't do a high volume of investments. We're actually relatively low volume and relatively
0: low turnover. And how do you think about the distribution between public tokens in your fund and, and private investments? And how does that evolve over time? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the really
1: interesting things about this space that makes it different than, say, a public equities market or, or venture is that illiquid versus listed tokens is one dimension. And then the valuations that these things are at is another dimension. And you have things kind of all over the map. You have things that are illiquid, that are the network values are at a billion dollars. You have things that are on the listed markets, and the values are sub $100 million. And so kind of you have to, as an investor, be all over that map. You have to find things that you think are uh, listed and could have significant upside, but are you know high market cap. And you have to find things that are listed and have lower market caps. And so we, we kind of play across all of those. And one of the other interesting challenges here is um, the time to getting listed on an exchange is relatively short. And so you might end up investing in a thing that's illiquid today that ends up being listed on an exchange in two years and had a dramatic run-up in valuation along the way. And so even in your portfolio, all of a sudden you went from a thing that was relatively small exposure because it hadn't hit the markets yet to being listed on an exchange a month later and being actually a significant part of your portfolio, and uh, and so there there are actually a lot of interesting challenges around even how you balance that. So you have to be really really fluid. And actually, I would expect over time we would have pretty dramatic changes in the percentage of our portfolio that's early stage illiquid versus you know uh, listed. And we're actually pretty dynamic in how we think about what those ranges can be, uh, as opposed to a lot of other fund structures where you you actually have to very narrowly define those boxes. Which is why I think you're seeing. Some of the best funds in the space are crypto-native funds. You kind of have to break out of those existing molds to be able to execute well. Because otherwise, everything looks like an exception.
0: And so a lot of the best funds in the space are actually people who sort of understand or are willing to break those boundaries. What are some examples of private early-stage investments that Electrics made that may have been announced? There are two that um, uh, have been announced. Uh, One is a company called
1: Coda. Uh, Another is a company called Oasis. And if you kind of run through our framework of how we evaluate these things, let's take uh, Coda, for example, Um, real technology, right, using zero knowledge, uh, ZK Snarks to compress the blockchain. Amazing team, Isaac and Evan and and team uh, have experience with Snarks and, and have experience building software and shipping it. If you look at the token mechanics, they're, they're actually, without double-clicking into them too deeply, they actually make sense. Um, and from an investor's perspective, the valuation uh, made sense. And the go-to-market makes sense, actually. The, the idea that a currency could be significantly more distributed because uh, by snarking up the blockchain, you're going to significantly reduce the blockchain size itself, which allows you to have lighter-weight nodes and therefore create a much more distributed network, actually starts to create more distribution and real value. And, and they have some really clever thoughts around how, to, how the distribution could work. And as you start running through that and you say, wow, that's that kind of checks all the boxes. Oasis kind of, if you run through at a high level, very similar, right? Real technology, Don Song and team coming out of Berkeley, uh, world experts at privacy and trusted execution environments. The team has a track record of having started and executed on startups before. Um, so it's a combination of, of great academic backgrounds plus operators who have actually started companies uh, previously. Token mechanics make sense. It's a real problem. The idea of private smart contracts in the world actually is a real is a real need. Uh, if you think about, you know, ultimately you're going to have these contracts that are that hold money, and a lot of those use cases might actually be business use cases where you need to pay invoices, you need to pay your suppliers, and in that world, actually, privacy matters a ton. You really don't want your competitors to know who your suppliers are, for example, and so privacy baked into the core of how contracts work. Uh, might actually be a killer feature. And so there's there's a very clear market need for that. And so again, it checks kind of all the boxes. But those are two, I think, example projects, I think, where it's just like, you sort of run through it really, really quickly. And you're like, wow, it actually, it checks all the boxes. And that's why we're so optimistic on both those.
0: So setting up a crypto native fund, uh, I'd love to compare and contrast a little bit. What are some differences between, I guess, being an angel investor or traditional venture capital investor versus crypto native fund? And then what are some differences between being a you know public equity hedge fund manager versus a crypto native fund? I think crypto native is, is some hybrid
1: of the two. So these markets are really early. You have to evaluate the team and their ability to grow. You have to, you're really looking at slope and growth trajectories, both for people and teams and projects and technology adoption and the rate at technology is being developed. You know, early stage investors really are looking at slope and you say, if I play this forward for five years, what does the world look like and what does this team look like and what does this technology look like? At the same time, you're talking about an asset class that's semi-liquid and goes liquid in potentially 18 months or two years after you invest. And so you're faced with a number of operational challenges, uh, the kind that VCs usually don't have to think about, but public equities folks do have to think about, which is how do you manage liquidity? Uh, How do you manage custody? Um, So you're going to get these tokens, and, and then what do you do with them? If it goes up order of magnitude in price, how do you handle that? Uh, how do you manage your exposure in your portfolio construction? And a lot of those skills actually come more from the public equity side. And so what you have is kind of this space in the middle where you have to take the best of both worlds and bridge it together, which is why I think you're seeing crypto native funds emerge, because it looks different enough day to day from what either of those types of firms do today, that it likely doesn't make sense for those guys to enter directly or fully. Uh, Though I think you will see overlap. I think you you are already seeing traditional VCs enter the space and those boundaries always are a little, are, you know, fuzzy, and so people will play here, but I think there there are some big opportunities for funds that take the best of both worlds and and try to bring those into the crypto world.
0: Yeah, I mean, in many ways, your background is almost perfect. You have the trifecta of being. A successful angel investor, so you have a deep investing experience, your technical your background, um, having been at Stanford, uh, and also just having worked at really successful companies like Google and Facebook. So you've seen what it, what it means to actually execute and be commercial in a high growth setting. What are you observing in, in terms of the skill set that's required to be a successful crypto investor? And you know, how will that kind of change over time? The skill set is also different.
1: I think you have to understand these early stage markets and you have to understand and have an intuitive feel for teams and early stage markets, um, in addition to some experience there and having seen how technology adoption cycles work across the internet and mobile and social and SaaS and self-driving and supersonic planes. And these are all the kinds of things I've I've been investing in for the last 10 years. And you have to be technical enough to understand whether or not some of these things are real. And at the end of the day, because it's such a nascent space, a lot of what you have to do is operational. Uh, And so you have to manage custody, you have to build software. So for example, some of the things that we invest in are we actually write our own software for portfolio management. Um, we actually have written uh, crawlers, and we're crawling GitHub and we're crawling the web to get data about which projects are real. So, you know, which projects are actually getting adoption, uh, which projects have real developers writing real code. You can actually analyze that code. So we can fingerprint it and we can say, oh, is this actually unique code that has been written here? Or is this actually code that was patched from some other project? And so it's not the developers on this project doing it, they're actually just drafting on this other project. So that data is out there, but to get the data, you have to be technical and you have to write your own software and operationally build an organization that can do that kind of work. And so that universe of people who can do all of those things or the teams that have all of those characteristics in one team, there are actually not that many teams that can do that and do that well.
0: How do you think Electric will evolve in terms of its capabilities and services? I mean, there's so many different ways to interact with these early stage projects now. You can be a validator, you can run a node. What are you offering today to some of these projects and, and how will that continue to expand? I think there are, there are kind of two things
1: that differentiate us and will be increasingly important over time for other funds uh, and other people in the space generally. So one is what you were saying, which is increasingly I think projects are saying that we don't want to just give away tokens to investors who are passive. We actually want people who can participate in the network in some meaningful way. And uh, that might mean running a node or a validator. That might mean at the very least staking. Uh, but there are going to be variations of this. There are going to be other projects that um, say, hey, you have to actually use the tokens in the way that they're intended if it's, if it's some sort of utility network. And so I think that's going to be a thing. That sort of active participation is going to be a muscle that uh, in order to be successful in the long term, a lot of funds are going to have to build out. Uh, the second is, at the end of the day, a lot of these companies, even though they, they are tokens and the centralized organization over time may dissolve, and so it doesn't look like a traditional startup, like you're not taking equity in a thing and then somebody's going to come buy that that entity, a lot of the problems that you have uh, in the early days look a lot like startup problems. So great, you, you've now done a token raise and you have to go hire 15 or 20 engineers and you have to hire a product person and you have to hire a designer and you have to figure out how to structure your team and you have to learn how to ship and you have to hit that goal and you have to have metrics to measure your progress. And a lot of those things are actually things that companies like Facebook and Google are world-class at, the companies that they are and as successful as they are because they're exceptional at those things. And so what we're finding is a lot of what we end up doing is trying to help companies Uh, with those best practices, with engineering management best practices, with product best practices, uh, with organizational best practices. And I think we're unique and and fortunate in that that's our background, having started and sold multiple companies and and been fortunate enough to work at Google and Facebook. And so that kind of value add, in addition to participating in the network, I think you're going to see, which is what you saw in venture as well, right? Like the most successful VCs are the ones who actually help their companies, right? They actually bring something to the table other than the money. And so I think you're starting to see a similar thing on the crypto side is The best founders are looking around and saying, well, there's a lot of money, so who should I take money from? Actually, if I'm going to take the same amount of money, maybe I should take it from people who can actually help me. And so I think you're going to see more of that as well.
0: How do you think about valuations in this market? You know, at a high level, the way we think about it is the way you have to think about it,
1: I think, in any early stage market, which is in the short term, it's very, very hard to know. Like if you do a series A in a company, is the company worth 30 million pre or 35 million pre? That's a really tough question. Uh, and so in some sense, the market sets the price as an investor, what you're trying to figure out is if this thing works, how big could it be? And is there a reasonable path for this thing to have a significant asymmetric return? And the way you figure that out is you essentially look at the total addressable market and work backwards and you say, if this actually works, if the team actually executes and they achieve some reasonable, uh, market penetration of a real problem, that I can put a total addressable TAM calculation around, what would that mean for the valuation of this thing? And so we kind of work backwards from that. And so we say, if this is solving a real problem, can we identify the TAM? And given the token economics and given some time horizon for adoption and reasonable assumptions around that, can we work backwards into what a valuation would be today that makes sense, given a target return? It's much, much harder to do kind of a bottoms up.
0: What do you think the future of asset management is going to look like if, We move to a world where everything's tokenized. There's endless investment opportunities. What does that look like, passive, active?
1: I think it probably ends up being a lot like the existing uh, markets in the sense that you'll get specialists as the market grows bigger. So you'll have people who specialize on the early stage side, people who specialize in um, more active trading on the larger tokens, um, especially once the bands in which those things trade uh, narrows. And so I think you'll, you'll probably get specialization over time. Right now you have a lot of generalists who are playing in multiple parts of that. Um, but as the market emerges, I would expect like very similar specialization. And then I think the interesting question is going to be, to what degree do those specializations play to the strengths of the crypto native funds versus the incumbents. So take something like um, high frequency trading or active trading on the public markets um, and once you have tokens that are very, very large market cap at some point in the future, is a Rentech better positioned to do something like that? Or is somebody who's a crypto native company who really understands blockchain and can instrument their own nodes and um, has been doing that for three years, are they better positioned to do that? And I think that's a bit of an open question right now. Uh, my bet generally is that when you have these new platform waves emerge, the incumbents are less well positioned than most people might expect. And I don't think finance is any different. And so I would expect that it's going to be a bunch of crypto native firms that emerge onto this, perhaps in partnership with some of the incumbents. But I think generally speaking, you'll get specialization over the next
0: five to 10 years. So I guess our last question, what can our listeners do to follow the progress of Electric? We're not super active online. (laughs) It's less about, I think,
1: following us. And what I would encourage people to do actually is get involved more generally in the crypto ecosystem. I think in a couple of different ways. At the very least, if you look at things like uh, user adoption numbers and how many people are participating, depending on where you benchmark it, any you know people will say, hey, it looks kind of like 1990, or some people might say it looks like 1995 or 1998. But regardless, I think the takeaway there is if you knew everything about the way the world worked out in 1990, what would you have done? Or in 1995, what would you have done? And at the very least, you probably would have tried to understand what the internet was about. You would have at the very least tried to figure out how to buy something online. You would have tried to figure out like what this eBay thing was, what this PayPal thing was, right? And if you got into it early enough, it, it might have actually had very dramatic consequences for you or your kids or your career down the road. So at the very least I would encourage people to pay attention to this thing that's happening and figure out how to participate in some in some passive way that doesn't necessarily mean as an investment, but literally just read about it, follow people on Twitter who are doing this, read the interesting blog posts that are coming out and And try to understand why these things are happening and and why there might be adoption and what the implications of that might be. Because I do think this might be one of these things that you look back in 10 or 20 years and you say, oh, wow, the world looks really, really different today than it did 20 years ago. And if that's true, I think
0: you might actually make a lot of different decisions along the way if you come to understand it. The key takeaways from today's episode are, one, Electric Capital believes that the most compelling investment opportunity in crypto today is in programmable money. Two, Electric defines programmable money as potential monetary stores of value, including Bitcoin, as private transactions, including Monero and Zcash, and as smart contracts, including Ethereum. And three, Electric believes that programmable money is the most promising segment because it's useful today with no significant technology blockers, and because the market size for programmable money is potentially in the trillions of dollars, so investors may generate significant returns from today's valuations. Thank you for listening to the show. We're trying to make the crypto ecosystem more mainstream and welcoming. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review in iTunes and share this with one person you know who is trying to learn more about crypto technology. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary Dewitt or email me at zach at wing.vc